Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Trevor Schoonmaker. Schoonmaker is the director of the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. He'll join me to discuss how art museums engage, or might engage, America's evaluation of its history, specifically its white supremacist history. The Nasher, of which Schoonmaker was the chief curator before becoming director earlier this year, has, for 15 years now, been a sector leader in addressing underexamined histories in its collecting, exhibition, and programming practices. On the second segment, we'll revisit my May 2019 conversation with Sarah Beetham, who has been looking at monuments and memorials across the United States. If you get a chance, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's really important in helping us reach new audiences. Trevor Schoonmaker, after the break. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can wex from home with exclusive live streams, virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to wexarts.org for events such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of LaToya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the WEX. It's all at wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, featuring the work of more than 60 Black artists who defined Black identity, creativity, activism, and social responsibility over two decades. Soul of a Nation explores what it meant to be a Black artist in America during two revolutionary decades, from the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement to the early 1980s and the emergence of identity politics. See works by pivotal artists like Betty Saar, Romare Bearden, Elizabeth Catlett, Roy de Carava, David Hammonds, Lorraine O'Grady, and Faith Ringgold. Accompanying the exhibition is a dynamic lineup of virtual programming, artist talks, discussions, films, and more. Now on view through August 30th. Visit mfah.org soul. Explore art from home. Explore art from home with Getty. Visit online exhibitions such as Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, and Bauhaus, Building the New Artist. Watch videos about art making and conservation, as well as hundreds of art history talks. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. And listen to interviews with artists, writers, curators, and scholars to hear about their current projects and concerns. Learn more at getty.edu slash art. And we're back. Trevor Schoonmaker, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me, Tyler. I don't know what the best place to start our conversation is, but as I'm a bit of a history nerd, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with history getting us into the present. One of the things about art that interests me is is that ever since the mid-1830s, art has been among the primary places where the idea, the, our idea of the American nation has played out. And you see that in Thomas Cole and Sanford Gifford and Aaron Douglas and Martha Rossler and, and, and so on. And of course, America's first art museums were very much founded with the idea of the American nation in mind. The Met was founded by unionists after the Civil War, very intentionally and specifically as a response to and in, in continuation of 
the big sanitary commission benefiting fairs that presented art as patriotism and explicitly. Um, in the same way, the MFA Boston, the, the other first American muse, art museum, did too. It opened as part of the American Centennial Celebrations in 1876. So my history lecture done into the present. I'm not sure art museums institutionally address America or nation in, in, in ways they once thought was necessary. So especially given our present summer of 2020, is that something we should expect or want art museums to do? Certainly being at a university art museum, it's, it rises, the, the topic, you know, comes to the fore more frequently. There being American art, you know, historians and, and so forth. With our collection and our actual mission at hand, it's not really, not that much is frankly written into what we are doing specifically, but we have taken certain approaches, maybe more regionally or cross-sections of what it means to be American. One of them being a show called Southern Accent about the American South. Another being Pop America, curated by Esther Gabara, a professor at, at Duke who looked at sort of conceptual and, and pop art practices through the Americas and mostly Latin America. So that it's something that we're thinking about and maybe expanding the notion of what America or questioning, maybe even more than expanding the notion of what America means, how to define it, even how, what, how, what it means to be working in the South, thinking about our place and position. We do think about those things. And even in, even in building our collection, we're not a museum by any means of Southern art. But I do think that we have to look at what's taking place around us. We have to look at the history around us, the culture around us. Certainly, it comes into play. It's just maybe not the forefront of what we're doing. I guess one reason I, I thought of it is because, to me, an, an outsider, I, I see your museum, both your, you know, talking now to formerly chief curator, you, <laughs> too, as having had a long-term engagement with who makes up America in a way that a lot of American museums have only come to in like the last <laughs> couple months. <laughs> I see. Yeah, and I think both of those shows actually are, are, are good examples, in fact, of that. But I think what you're saying, yes, who makes up America and trying to you know, I think representation is important, obviously, and that is such an important topic now amongst so many other things. But who does make up the U.S.? Who does make up the American South? And who are we speaking to? And I would say speaking for, but we're not really speaking for anyone. But who needs to be represented? And, and, and the incredible diversity of our country has not been well represented by American museums. You know, we have a lot of work to keep doing, but we certainly have had the great fortune, you know, being a young museum, one of the one of the great advantages of that, you know, the disadvantages, you don't have a big, huge endowment to lean on. The, the great advantage is that you also don't have a history that's weighing you down. And we're able to really give a platform to artists from all different backgrounds but I think because you do that within especially a contemporary space, you know, with, with, with the presentation of living artists, it changes how, in, say, your collection galleries, 
work by say 19th century white artists may be considered, may be addressed, may be approached by visitors. I mean, no one, I mean, having lived in Washington for 20 years, nobody ever walked into the National Gallery of Arts, American galleries, and thought of anything but gilded frames and blue chip artists and splashy presentations in New York and rivalries between church and beer stat and, and, and so on. Whereas, you know, at your museum, you know, when I can go from seeing Ebony G. Patterson to seeing Albert Bierstadt, I'm inevitably going to think of that Bierstadt differently than I do um, at, you know, in, 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 in the West Wing at the National Gallery. Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly what we're hoping to achieve. And, and as you know, that like those having a program that is contemporary, focused on living artists and focus on a, a, a great diversity of artists and and voices and and you know whether they're black artists or white artists or you know latinx artists or indigenous artists you know what have you having that diversity of voices is what's so important for us and i think when then when you step into what are admittedly a smaller collection for us and more are more historic galleries you have to see things differently because we're known for the contemporary program that's that's what we've put forward. That's what our first director, Kim Rorschach, decided that she was going to make as our, um, she's essentially said, that's what we're going to be known for as a contemporary institution without actually being able to be a contemporary art museum. But that's where we're going to focus our energy. That's where we're going to put our money and our resources. And that's what I was hired to do. But we also do it through immediate juxtapositions, so integrating contemporary works into galleries of non-contemporary art, which I know is we're not alone at all in doing that. But it does it does present uh, different opportunities for conversation. It does allow people to see things differently, maybe challenge people to read uh, work in a new way. And so we're we're always trying to sort of play with those ideals. In the last couple of years, I've had a number of conversations with contemporary curators who may, may still be contemporary curators or some teach and some have gone on to direct. And they have pointed to a decision the Nasher made 15 years ago, which was to make a conscious decision to orient its collecting and exhibition strategies, but especially its collecting strategies around artists who have been historically underrepresented or intentionally and specifically excluded by, by mainstream museums. How, not, how that informed their work, how that gave them an argument to take to their collecting committees and their boards and how important that that was to them. What makes that strategy a meaningful address of everything from institutional practice to white supremacy? First of all, I mean, I know anecdotally through others that that they feel this way, but it's really wonderful to hear it. You know, you don't you probably don't hear we probably don't even hear it enough. Certainly, I don't think our staff and our board hears it enough. But it's great. It's great to hear. I, you know, I think. Let me jump in real quick with it, with with a specific example, then, because I I was more obscure than I meant to be. And you know, when the rebellions started in Richmond, the specific geography of the Virginia MFA was 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 really interesting to me. You have the United Daughters of the Confederacy on one side of the museum, and you had what had traditionally been a museum of the Confederacy on the other side of the museum. Its geography was freighted 
in 2005, 2006, John Ravenall, who was the contemporary and modern department head at the VMFA, began on his own to focus his acquisitions on historically underrepresented artists in, in museum collections. And one of his first biggest acquisitions was, was a Kahinda Wiley. And, and, and in time, John got his board to, to kind of more fully understand what he was doing. But in 2005 or six, it didn't. And so John got this Wiley and he installed it in what had been the Virginia MFA's first building, which was kind of an English Renaissance revival building, the architectural embodiment of English white supremacy. And he installed the uh, Wiley right where it led into the Virginia MFA's next building. So it was right at the middle of the institution and right on this axis where the polar ends were two buildings celebrating the Confederacy. And in hindsight, that was probably the most important 21st century history moment in that that institution's history. It set up the collecting it's done in the 15 years since. It is substantially responsible for, for how and why the museum was able to work with Wiley and acquire the sculpture that's in front of the museum two blocks from Monument Avenue. And so John, 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 right after he bought the painting, I was in Richmond and he took me to see it. And, and I stupidly, dumbly told him, I just, you know, I, I got what he was doing. I, under, I understood, but I just wasn't a big Wiley fan. And John, in his, his very patient way, said to me, oh, that's okay, you will. And so 15 years later, I apologized to him because I finally, I mean, I, I've come to like Wiley a lot, but, but it took me 15 years to apologize to him. And so in, in the process of that apology, we got to talking, and, and that's where this question comes from. He was one of the people who said to me, yeah, what the Nasher did was really important for us. That's no, but it's it's great to hear. I mean, I I know I know John uh, uh, not very well, but it, you know, you just you have few opportunities to actually hear these impressions from other colleagues, and uh, it's always it's always helpful to hear. There's we can you know we focus a lot on the things we can do better, and so it's good to get the positive reinforcement. Yeah. So my question before all that had been, what makes that collecting strategy? a meaningful institutional address, a meaningful address of white supremacy. You know, I could mention the things that we all know too well, that, you know, obviously this country was built on white supremacy and it's permeated every facet of society. So it's it's such a tedious thing to try and change, even incrementally or certainly to eradicate is a whole nother issue. Being in the American South, which is the the site where slavery took root also the contested side of the civil rights movement. I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I'm very attuned to the politics, the racial politics of the region. Durham has been one of the most significant African-American entrepreneurial centers in the country, and certainly in the American South. And it has a large uh, African-American community. Uh, they're great scholars at Duke. There's all these, there's all these reasons why it, it made sense for us to take this path in presenting the works, acquiring the works, exhibiting the works of black artists, of largely artists of color, um, women, and, and really trying, you know, we had, again, I would just say that being a young institution it created the opportunity for this. And I, I sort of stepped into a situation where we, there, I was the only contemporary art curator. There were only two curators when I was hired. And so 
I was fortunate to be supported by the senior curator and by the director and the board. And so it wasn't so much a conscious decision at that time as it was what I knew, to be perfectly honest. And and knowing that, yes, that, I mean, I could don't want to go down too much of a personal path how I arrived here, but it's, you know, knowing that our futures and the success of our country and us as individuals is intertwined with one another. We can't be, one group can't be successful without the other. And so if one group is, or many groups have been excluded at the expense of white patriarchy, then we had an opportunity to do something great because, geez, you know, look at all these amazing artists that are so obvious today in 2020, but in 2005, 2006, even a few years ago, we're still, still gaining traction and much needed traction for being overlooked for so long. So it just would, you know, it allows people to see themselves, I think, first and foremost, community-wise, to see themselves in a museum, which that, that kind of representation is so important. And that's something that Barclay Hendricks and I talked a lot about and him, you know, traveling around Europe and not being able to see himself, but admiring the technique of these old masters, but then wanting to represent himself and his own culture, his own experience. But then also, I think the opportunity with some of the issues and not all of these works by these artists that we're supporting and collecting are issues based, but the ones that are, are addressing critical sociopolitical issues, issues around race and gender and human rights that challenge the status quo in a way that is really necessary. And so that, that helps our audience grow. So uh, that's it's been it's been terrific for us. The very first show that I curated, I just simply came out of the fact that I, you know, our director said, "I've got an opening. We, this museum opened. We just hired you. You know, what was it? Maybe seven months later, and we have a big opening in the schedule for only seven months from now. What do you got?" And and I was like, "Well, what can we do?" You know, as being it coming out of an independent uh, as an independent curator in New York, you feel like, well, God, that's tons of time, you know. Which, of course, in an institutional framework, that's like no time, as you know so well. It felt like it as an eternity because you've never, I had never been saddled with all of saddled is the wrong word, but you never had the responsibility of doing all these other administrative things, all these things of representing an institution and a museum and a university and a community. You'd always just sort of you know, pushing forth your own ideas. If all I was doing was curating a show that I was deeply passionate about, that's plenty of time. But to her credit, she kind of just let me focus on that. And so the first show was called Street Level, and it was Mark Bradford, William Cordova, and Robin Road. And it was well-received. It was very well-received. And surprisingly, we didn't even try to shop it, and it traveled to two venues. And immediately our board was like, God, this is great. A, it's terrific work. I think you, we can recognize that they're terrific artists, and some of them have gone on to extraordinary heights. But B, we also didn't know how to begin collecting, maybe to get back to your original question, building a collection. And one approach was to say, well, we could do anything in the world. Why don't we start buying out of our exhibition program? And so we were able to acquire William Cordova and Robin and I presented Mark Bradford. <laughs> that's one of our. That's one of our great. Uh, one of our greatest misses 
only because it would have been every penny in the budget. And it, it was so early that it was just hard for the board to grapple with, you know, who is this guy exactly? The work's fantastic. But, you know, in retrospect, it's mind blowing that we missed that opportunity. But I can't say I didn't try. Of course, the first retrospective or survey of his work was planned uh, mere, merely seven years into his career and went on view nine years into his career. He hadn't even had been making work for 10 years before. <laughs> Incredible. So kind of pivoting from from representation, whether it's within artworks or, or of artists within your collection, to the present a little bit. So appreciating that art museums, as presently constituted anyway, aren't designed with this in mind. As a curator, or, or now as a director, do you ever think to yourself, uh, after putting down the morning newspaper, if anybody still picks up morning newspapers, <laughs> here's an issue that's primary in American life. And, and you know, now as we're talking, for example, about the extrajudicial killing of black people by, by police forces, do you ever pick up a paper and think to yourself, you know, this is an issue that needs to be addressed in my galleries tomorrow morning. I need a way to do it or I wish I had a way to do it? You know, it. And my answer is yes and, and no. The yes is that, to be honest, we don't really have a space. We don't have the right space for this. And this is something when I first got there, I was like, well, we will figure it out. We've got to have this kind of response space, maybe not always curatorially, but maybe for an artist to even do something that's a little messier, a little faster, a little more improvisational. We don't really have that kind of space. But I would say more on a personal level, curatorially, because, you know, I've been, as director, I've been, I've been in the seat for a little over a month uh, during a pandemic and haven't met with my staff in person since we all left in March. So I, I have a lot to learn about being a director. That's all I'm trying to say. But as a, as a curator, I those topics come up and they're so, there's such immediacy in the desire to try and address them. And I think the question for me is like, what is the best method? What is the best forum for exploring this issue, for tackling this this concern? And at times it's a panel, at times it's a talk, at times it's an essay, and sometimes yeah, it it can be an exhibition. What I what I've tried to do in in lieu of having an actual space for this, it's also as you know. Uh, Museums tend to move at a glacial pace, but really try to address it with our collection, our collecting practice in general, so that while we can't anticipate the events that are going to occur next week, we're trying to actually address these broader issues within society and and the breadth, the breadth of our culture, or the cultures that make up this country the critical issues that are at stake and have those represented in the collection. Because if we always have them around, then there's always something we can lean on in that moment. And, and the other thing I would say too, is that it's, you know, at a teaching institution, those are perfect works for teaching because it's not just the art historians who, who jump into it and dive into it because it's not only about aesthetics, but you know, the history professors and the sociology, like everyone has an, an angle. They've been so effective and helpful for us. We do a lot of what we call study storage teaching. So we can, some of these things can be addressed by faculty and students, 
that are immediate that just came up and they can request them and use them even if they're not on view for the public. And that's something special that we're able to offer that you know, perhaps a university museum cannot. Speaking of being a university museum, part of being at a university is the opportunity to have actual physical access to other parts of the university. Are you able to, for example, take advantage of the collections in Duke's libraries? They may not have art collections, but they certainly have visual culture. I've always hated that phrase. Collections that can live well next to artworks. No, you're you're right on the money. Uh, we actually have collaborated with our libraries a couple times, and they have incredible collections, historic collections, uh, all sorts of visual material. But they have, you know, collected specific archives, and within those archives, some of them have been incredible photographic archives. And we did one show that was largely built on as the foundation of photographic collection from Duke Libraries. And so we have we found a few different ways to collaborate. Yeah, it's true that we can pull on these different resources, which is so helpful. It's because you, it's not just what you have in storage within your own collection, but within the broader university, you have these physical resources, whether it be you know the collection of the library or you have the intellectual resources of your colleagues and their expertise that they bring to the table. And they might, you know, as you know, they've curated shows, Rick Powell's amazing Archibald Motley show that we originated and traveled to the Whitney and beyond, or I mentioned earlier, Esther Gabara's Pop America show. So, and there's a great number of them, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a special relationship that we have. And, and so working with the libraries, and then we also have the Center for Documentary Studies that we've collaborated with a handful of times in different ways. And, you know, we, we try to, I don't want to say stay in our lane because we like to we like to collaborate and work together, but we try not to step on other, you know, people's toes because they're doing that work so well, and we try to do our work well and find ways in which we can collaborate. So we did a show of with we've done two shows with the Center for Documentary Studies also, just as another example. So we talked a, a few minutes ago about how the Nasher has particularly prioritized collecting and showing black artists. You arrived at the Nasher just after the museum opened. So I know you weren't there at the founding moment, but can you talk through to the best of your ability, the extent to which that was a decision that a white staff and a white board or mostly white staff and mostly white board came to and how a mostly white group navigated to, to that position? So yes, I was I was hired, you know, roughly half a year or a little more after the museum opened and and the question was still on the table of, you know, who who are we? What are we going to do? Who can we be? What's our what's our mission? What's our vision? I mean, there's no better place to step into than still have those questions on the table. And, you know, very very fortunate to have a board that and a director at that time, Kim Rorschach, who never gave a directive to the curators, to the staff to say, we are doing this, but what ideas do you have? And so I was able to bring ideas to the table. You know, I mentioned the street level show earlier, you know, the next show 
less than a year after that was Barkley Hendricks. So to pull that show together and a catalog and both of my catalogs, the, the conversation was, it was a very, very organic process, I guess is what I should say. It really evolved and grew from these exhibitions, these proposals. And again, I should say, you know, our, our board doesn't, our board of advisors does not have to approve exhibitions. We merely present to them. And that's obviously great for a curator. Uh, you need the support of your director. You want to get buy-in from your team, you know, from your colleagues. And then you go for it and then present it with enthusiasm to your board. And to their credit, they really got behind it. I have not been a part of selecting any of the board. I, I inherited this group. They were an, have been an incredibly supportive. Obviously, people have different points of view and come from different backgrounds. But by and large, it really is a process that started from me being asked to organize shows and then us collecting from it. And then the enthusiasm and seeing, you know, it might have been different had the shows not done well. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it would have. If Barclay Hendricks hadn't been a revelation for reintroducing his work to the mainstream art world, then, you know, maybe we would have been pushed down another path. But I've been really lucky. The museum has been really lucky to have a, a supportive director and board. So, you know, I, there never was a moment where anyone said, this is what we're doing. Let's agree upon it. We need to know exactly what we're doing. They allowed for openness. They allowed for exploration. They allowed for presentation of different ideas. And so kudos to them for allowing that. And, and we had to come up with good ideas. And so at some point after, you know, this show, that show, the next show, the board and, and our director and our staff started feeling, gosh, you know, we're really maybe this is who we are we're doing this well, we're getting a, a, a great reception, we're, we're obviously doing something that has been needed because look at the response, been long overdue, and then I guess we should keep doing it. And that sort of was the feeling. And then you got to feel the pride that the board felt, the staff felt, and in doing this good work. So that that's kind of how the, the programmatic side come about. Now, there's no question that we have a lot of work to do with diversifying the actual board itself and the staff. You know, we can talk about that if you want. But yeah, that's how sort of the programmatics came about, the collecting and, uh, and the exhibitions. So it sounds like you're saying that the staff, either junior staff to senior staff or senior staff to the director or the staff to the board, never had a conversation about decentering whiteness. It just, y'all just did it as part of your programmatic work and it came to be accepted? Yeah, that that's probably probably the easiest way to put it, Tyler. You know, it, there wasn't a moment where I, the staff came in and said, we're going to decenter whiteness. Here's how we're going to do it. But as soon as they started seeing the results, then those conversations started coming up. Like, look what it means. So, yes, the, the conversations did arise, but it really was much more subtle in the way that it came and organic in the way that it came about. And, and I, you know, it, it remains, we'll never know, I guess, like had 
if I or someone had come in with a more dogmatic position, like this is who we have to be, this is how we're going to make a difference, and this is what we're doing, I think I would have been met with some resistance only because these are people who are very smart, very accomplished, and it can, you, it, it's not so much what I would have been saying, but just that I've been taking that approach. Almost anything would have been shot down. So my approach was like, let's, I'm going to just quietly do the work, put my nose to the grindstone. Now I would, you know, I say quietly, you know, in the board meetings, I would plead and passionately state my case for certain artists and particularly with acquisitions, because that's where, that's where all the juicy sort of, you know, back and forth conversation comes about because everyone has a different opinion, but they've been supportive of that as well. So what is your board makeup and what is the role of a director, a new director, even if it's someone who's been there a while, in building the board to look more like its community? So we have two boards. And just to tell you a little bit about our our sort of advisory and governance structure, technically the provost, I, the director of the museum reports to the provost and because we're part of the university of Duke university, the university board of trustees in theory make the big, big decisions on funding, but they really have no direct relationship to the museum. So a board of a national board of advisors was created before the museum opened. And they really advise on helping us work through policy, major, major fundraising initiatives. And like I mentioned before, they love to be involved in acquisitions and the collecting process. They they are mostly, not exclusively, alumni, Duke alumni, who live all over the country. It is very white at the moment, and not exclusively. And I, you know, I don't have, I should have the list in front of me, I don't. Probably roughly 20 people, and two, three, if you get into the collections committee, you know, it gets a little more diverse, but that's not the point on the, and the actual board of advisors, maybe two or three people of color. That reminds me of the Met, of the Met's 35 board members, four or five of the Met's trustees are black, slightly larger Latinx percentage on the Met's board than on, on yours. Yeah. So it goes without saying we have a lot of room and opportunity for improvement here for, for, for growing diversity. Now these are, these are board members who've been incredibly supportive of our mission, of our vision, of our programmatic and, and the direction we've taken. So the question, and so, and how do we build the board? Okay. So there actually, we now have a new, relatively new, not new president and Benson Price. And we actually have to go through central development and the president's office to get approval now for adding to the board. So there, this is part of what I was alluding to earlier about, you know, some of the things, there are so many advantages to being part of a university, but some of the other things that you'd like to be able to quickly promote someone or add someone to a board, uh, hire this person, all of those things go through Duke. Those are not strictly the, or even give someone a raise, are not strictly, those are not the purview of the museum itself. Those are larger Duke conversations and that, which require approval. Then we have a second board, which is what we call our friends board. And that is mostly a Durham-based community board. And it is marginally more diverse, but not significantly more diverse. 
Their role is focusing on reaching out to new audiences, to increasing membership, getting the word out, bringing people in the door. And and again, incredibly enthusiastic, incredibly supportive in, in myriad ways or, you know, entrepreneurs in, in the city and from, you know, artists. We, we have artists actually on both the Friends Board and the National Board of Advisors. We have some younger generation, which is great, but there's not enough, uh, in my opinion, cultural racial diversity. And I think that goes without saying. So again, these are these are areas for where we have great opportunity. This board, the the governing structure is that they sort of self-govern. And there's a nominating committee, the director of and the development team have input, but but the committee has to approve and bring people in. They recommend people and then they approve. Uh, I've not been through that process with them or with either board for that matter of recommending anyone, but I have a, you know, one would hope and think that if the director has a strong feeling that she or he can be persuasive enough to to make changes. I, I do, you know, all of these people are super passionate about our program, which is always the case with these boards. Well, you, you hope, you hope, that's true. It's not always the case, actually. But yeah, there's, you know, th- these are areas, these are areas where some, you know, some changes, it's not even changes. It's like just Evolution, yeah, because it is an evolution. It's not like we're removing people. People are on terms, which is great for the Friends Board. So there's there's more opportunities there. And the Board of Advisors is a little trickier. The terms are not as concrete uh, because it doesn't mean someone has to rotate off. And that has been, by and large, a very good thing for the museum because there isn't a massive group of people who are part of the art world, art collectors or tremendous supporters who understand who we are and what we do, because most of the people that have the that kind of art world understanding and network don't live in Durham. You know, most of the board of advisors live in New York or Los Angeles or Dallas or what have you. So it's something that we're going to be working on. You know, I mean, they're they're aware. Uh, I'm aware. But it's definitely an, an area of opportunity. We have talked a couple times about how you are very specifically a university art museum. And I think that Duke is a whole lot less white as a student body than people think of it as being. So statistically, less than half of Duke's student body is white. Still, there are four and a half times as many white students at Duke as black students, which is enormously better than it was at my alma mater when I was there, which was pretty much a 25 to 1 ratio. This is all a long way of asking, what have you learned about presenting black artists to a student body that may not be majority white, but that is close? I'd say, first of all, that you're right, that the student body is more diverse than people believe it to be. And you're also right that that largely, not not exclusively by any means, but largely comes through these, there's a very large international presence at the campus. We get a really skewed, to be fair, we get a, I get a really skewed perspective on the student body in a positive way, in that those who are drawn to the museum tend to be much more diverse. Perhaps it's because of our program, the type of art that we tend to show and collect. The, there's strong student interest in the museum. We, we actually have a, um, we have a robust intern program through different departments. We, we teach courses and 
museum studies and curatorial studies. And we courses are taught through our curatorial team and academic initiatives department where students are interns and they get course credit and they help develop a show that they realize in another semester. And then there's also a, a sort of student advisory board called Muse. And so there's all there's all this engagement, but what I would say is that it's I, I do feel like we definitely have more students of color gravitate towards the museum. So I don't know if we're presenting as much to a white student body as we would be if there were sort of required courses in the museum. You know, some reason to make the students come. No, oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. I know it goes without saying is of course we we present a lot of black art. We present a lot of artists of color, but it's far from all we do. And and so and we have so many different constituencies and communities. And so we feel like we're it's pretty broad. So it's not only, you know, ethnically and racially diverse in terms of communities and constituencies, but like it's also there's Duke faculty has their own concerns. There's Duke students that have their own concerns. There's administration there. There's you know, cultural figures in Durham, there are, you know, the Latinx community and the deeply, you know, uh, long-standing, long-standing African-American community in Durham. There's the, the growing Mexican population specifically throughout North Carolina, a massive South Asian community around Cary, North Carolina, which isn't far, very far away. And so we can't be all things to all people, obviously and need to have a sense of identity, a sense of purpose. And so I think that's where having focused on artists of African descent and black artists as part of what we do has been of great benefit to us. And what's been really exciting is to see students who are not black really be able to learn and have opportunities that they may not have otherwise at a different university without this museum. And in part because we have scholars, again, like Rick Powell and others, they can and do use the collection rigorously in teaching. But that makes a big difference for us. One of the things I've seen a lot in the couple of decades I've been working in art is that when non-white artists come into the museum, especially as artists, audiences and indeed the museums that have brought them in often expect those non-white artists to address in their work or with their voice in in other programming their blackness or their experience as an Asian American or what have you whereas we do not expect white artists to come in and address their whiteness we do not demand that they address identity in the same way art museums do not almost totally do not present exhibitions that look at how whiteness was formed even though art was indeed one way it was formed in the United States, going back to the 1830s at least. Are there ways in which art museums can present or address or historicize or investigate art that interrogates whiteness and reveals its art's own role in whiteness's impacts? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, some some scholars and curators, as you know well, have done some of this work and Maurice Berger being one and his whiteness and race and contemporary art and RIP. Yeah, yeah, that was shocking and tragic. But Maurice did such important work 
and and did curate and and write significantly on on whiteness. I know there was something also at the kitchen a couple of years ago that I didn't get to see with the sort of a team of curators. But I think more, you know, to your point that, yeah, there is this expectation when artists come to any institution, particularly a white institution and the audience being predominantly white, even if there's a significant mix in the audience, that those artists would speak about their own experience and you know cultural racial experience which is not what white artists encounter so how do we investigate whiteness i mean you know i think that the opportunity is there kind of like what we we're talking a little bit about before with as you move through our other galleries and you see and so let's see you step into our european we have you know a few things set up that are slightly thematic that don't change dramatically in these more historic galleries. But if Kehinde Wiley's work is there in relationship to Italian Renaissance works, then it opens up that dialogue. And that's one way that we can address it. And then people can think more critically about, and teachers can use it and others, about the works that are in those galleries. I also would simply say, I guess, you know, being a white male curator, I can't speak for anyone but myself, um, so I can't even speak for straight white male Southerners from you know North Carolina. Like I can only speak for me, and so I think that's really important. Like to, I say that because we've done a lot uh, with the museum to try and provide uh, a platform for artists, and instead of trying to speak for them, and trying to provide an opportunity and support and visibility and amplify their message. And um, sometimes that's easier said than done, but that's the that's the mission, you know, that's really the goal. And that's why I've never even considered curating a show around black artists, because it makes no sense to me. But it happens a lot, of course. And, you know, it just doesn't, especially in 2020, but it's never made sense. I mean, you know, I, I, I of course, you know, have the luxury of my background affords me that no, knowing how problematic that is, that ghettoizing is so unhelpful. And, uh, and and then to attempt to speak for someone else. So, so you know, doing a solo show with Wageshi Mutu is a very different process than I'm going to say I'm going to do this survey of, of black artists. But to get back to, to your question about whiteness, I've kind of left that alone because it's been done a couple times. And I think, I think curators also, uh, you know, now I'm a director, I keep speaking as if I'm a curator because it's been a month, but, you know, curators also want, most curators anyway, want just like artists to be able to do something that's innovative and new and not been done before. And how can they do something that is meaningful? And, and just like artists, they can't all succeed. We can't all succeed. But I think that is the goal. And everyone has a different process. I've always been a, a more intuitive curator, for lack of a better word. I really start with the artwork. You know, that really the artwork has to speak to me to tell the story and what, what themes, what, what threads are we going to pull from it if we work on a thematic show, as opposed to I have a great concept and I'm going to plug in what might work. There's nothing wrong with either approach. It's just it's just a difference of how one works. And so 
I think it's pertinent in that it, I guess one is more of an if it you know we're part of an academic institution, but I've had a decidedly non-academic curatorial approach over the over the years, and so it's interesting that I am where I am. I guess I'll leave it there. Trevor Schoonmaker, thank you. Thank you so much. Experience Nasher Windows, a new series at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Providing exhibition space to North Texas-based artists, Nasher Windows highlights site-specific work or work made for exhibitions impacted by the pandemic shutdown. New artists are featured weekly until the building reopens. On view now through the entrance windows on Flora Street, Nasher Windows is an accessible way to engage with art safely while social distancing, free to the public. Learn more and plan a visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the arts press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Sarah Beetham. She's an assistant professor of art history at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in Philadelphia. This interview was recorded in May 2019 when she joined me to discuss art and its relationship to monuments and memorials in the United States. Her forthcoming book on the subject is titled Monumental Crisis, Accident, Vandalism, and the Civil War Citizen Soldier. It will examine how monuments have become central to a range of American discourses in the many decades since the Civil War. You may have noticed that we've done a number of segments on monuments in recent weeks. If this is new to you, have a look at manpodcast.com and see what we've been up to. Sarah Beetham, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, uh, it's good to be here. You have been looking at monuments to Civil War figures for years and years now. And I think the first way I'd like to suggest we consider them is is as art. So leaving alone the Union States for now, in, in your travels through the South, how often do you find a monument that has what you might consider art historical significance? I mean, that's a little bit of a tricky question. I think for me, what interested me in these particular soldier monuments that I work on in the first place is the fact that they are in kind of a weird place in between kind of a commercial commercial product and something that's more fine art. Um, most of these monuments are mass produced. They are made often by anonymous carvers, either in Italy or in Northern states. And so they're not the kind of thing for the most part that 
someone would think of as having art historical significance. I think there's ways in which they're kind of interesting, connected to kind of the long history of representing the human figure. Um, often you could talk about them as examples of contrapposto, connected to, you know, things coming from antiquity. But thinking of them as, you know, great works, kind of capital A art history is not really the way I think about them. Are the makers of them thinking about them or trying to put them in a certain lineage? I think so. So one of the poses that is the most common, so you you always hear it talked about the idea of parade rest, that these figures are standing at this pose. But when you're talking about this from a military context in the 19th century, you're talking about standing with your rifle in front of you, with your weight on one leg, looking directly ahead. But what does that sound like? You've got your weight on one leg, so you're shifting the weight off of the other leg. When we hear that as art historians, we're like, oh, that's contrapasso. And I don't think it's an accident that artists chose that particular military pose in order to put these statues. And often they don't get the idea of parade rest quite right. If you read what it says in the drill manual and you look at what the statue actually looks like, it's not quite the same. The statues are often kind of looking off to one side in a counterweight to the way that they're standing. And so I do think that these artists, whether consciously or not, are participating in this sort of long history of, of representing the human figure and that there are art historical and kind of art choices being made there, although perhaps not 100% consciously. Same two questions for the North. And in particular, do Northern monuments have a greater engagement or more intentional engagement with art history and, uh, the, the, than monuments in the South? Again, I don't think, not really. They're very similar to one another in iconography, often because they're being made by the same people. The Southern monuments, for the most part, are not being made in the South. Sometimes the bases will be made made in um, out of Southern granite. Uh, organizations like the McNeil Marble Works, for instance, Marietta, Georgia, would make bases out of Georgia granite and then buy statues from elsewhere to put on the bases. And they would either be coming from Italian firms or largely from the North. And so you're talking about places like the Monumental Bronze Company, Bridgeport, Connecticut, the American Bronze Foundry in, uh, in Chicago, the WH Mullins Company in Salem, Ohio. And these places are making both Union and Confederate soldiers basically the same iconography. The only difference is what costume they're wearing. And in some ways, that's actually strange. And we should, act, we should pay attention to that, because why are the why is the iconography the same on the side that won the war and on the side that lost the war? Why are they making the same monuments and why are they both using the same language of kind of Roman victory to represent their soldiers? That's odd. Is that true in both, say, 1880 and 1920? I would say kind of by 1880, the this is when this is starting to solidify. And then throughout the entire period when the most Confederate monuments are being built, they're very similar in visual iconography to the ones that are being made in the North. There are a few that are before 1880 that are a little bit different that actually have the rifle turned upside down, which was a position called reverse arms, which was used for funerals or surrenders. But you don't see that after about 1880. There are rifles right side up and they look just like the Union monuments. So it sounds like the these monuments, especially kind of considering that 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 decades-long arc kind of fit perfectly into the David Blight, kind of fit perfectly into the thesis of historian David Blight. His race and reunion thesis, for, for listeners who don't know, is all about how in the years after the war, Southerners wanted to maintain a, a certain white supremacy, 
and Northerners wanted more than anything else reconciliation, and they both agreed tacitly to let the other have what they wanted, what, the, what each wanted. And it sounds like the, these monuments just slide right into that idea. Absolutely. You know, David Blight has done amazing work on this. Um, Gaines Foster, who doesn't get talked about very much now um, in current conversations, but uh, he certainly talked about the idea of the largest number of monuments being built in this period after Reconstruction um, at kind of the height of Jim Crow and all of that. And then the Southern Poverty Law Center has also done a very great, good job of documenting this as well, that when these monuments are being built, really grasp perfectly onto this resurgence of white supremacy and of segregation and Jim Crow right around the turn of the 20th century. I think I know the answer to this question, but why did Southerners allow, air quotes, their monuments and their plinths to come from the North or from abroad? Was it simply that that's what the sites of production were? That's pretty much it. Uh -huh. You know, this was a problem during the Civil War, that the Southern econ economy was largely based on monoculture of one particular crop, and they needed lots of things to fight the war effort, and they needed to get them from elsewhere. You see the same thing happening with the production of monuments, that they wanted them quickly, they wanted them cheaply, they wanted to have them all kind of looking similar to each other, and so turning to firms that were already, had already figured out how to produce these things in quantity made it a lot easier and less expensive to be able to uh, to put more many of these monuments up very quickly. So we were talking a moment ago about history ref referencing forms, and, and you were talking about the way the soldiers in the monuments stood. Are there other history referencing forms that are particularly common, especially in the South? I mean, certainly, you know, if you look at the basic structure of what kinds of visual language are being used for these monuments. You've got triumphal columns with a figure on top, which look very much like Trajan's column. You have many, many obelisks, which of course is also an ancient form. Occasionally you have triumphal arches, although most of those I think are in the north. Um, there's a famous one in Brooklyn and there's a few others. And so the forms, Corinthian columns or you know, all of these ideas are coming from antiquity and expressing themselves in these monuments. So I was thinking about how the forms in so many of your pictures of, of Southern monuments come from antiquity. And one of the things that jumped out to me is that there were many slave societies in antiquity, of course. Was that an intentional reference? I doubt it. I doubt that they were thinking specifically of slavery. I think that, you know, the connection between the Greek and Roman past and America has a lot more to do with like the foundation of America on re these Republican ideals. And so you see that in the beginning of the nation. And then that kind of continues through the 19th century. Uh, that, that's that's interesting because it was northern intellectuals, particularly around Boston, the the, the hub of abolitionism in the early, early to mid 19th century that were most eager to move America beyond classicism in its art and in its forms. Citing, where did Southerners tend to put monuments, and is that different from where, the nor from where Northerners put theirs? So there are parts of this that are similar. So I would say in both the North and the South, the monuments start out being in cemeteries and then move into civic spaces. So in the first years after the war. And like we can kind of understand this with a more recent history if we think about the way the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was used in the first, you know, 10 or 20 years after it was put up as a place of going to mourn 
form for somebody who didn't come back, who's, you don't know where their body is. You don't have a grave that you can go and visit, but this is a place where you can go and see their name on the uh, on the monument and think about them. And so the first monuments that are put up between like about 1865 and 1880, the vast majority are in cemeteries. They have the list of the names of the dead on them. And they are these places that are primarily about mourning. What happens after about 1880 is that the monuments start to move into public spaces. In New England, you're talking about kind of the, the New England town green and, uh, you know, other similar kinds of spaces around the country. But in southern counties, for the most part, um, when you're talking about a county that's largely rural, where people have to come from all over the place to one particular place to do business, there tends to be a county courthouse in the county seat, a courthouse lawn in front of the county courthouse. And then that's where the Confederate monument will be. So if you look in New England, it'll be like, you know, little town, little monument, little town, little monument, little town, little monument. And every town next to each other has has their own monument. What tends to happen in southern places is that it is the each county has a county seat. And then the monument on that courthouse lawn is the county monument for that county. And so very much connected to the local government of the entire county. And then the Confederate monument becomes a symbol that's in front of those places. And then you ask yourself, like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that this monument that is, you know, pretty bald symbol of white supremacy is standing in front of the courthouse lawn, uh, standing on the courthouse lawn in front of the courthouse that is the place where everybody in the county has to go to do their government related business. And that's like a slight difference, I think, from the way that they're cited in the North. Which makes the sighting of monuments uh, at the entrance to Southern universities all the more pointed, I would think. Sure, sure. First for the South and then for the North. Did many monuments include references to their own eventual deterioration or collapse uh, or what have you? And if so, why? I mean, that's something I have just started to scratch the surface of. And this is kind of in, in the past couple of weeks or so, all of a sudden I'm noticing these weird references to, you know, when this monument crumbles and falls, it doesn't really matter because what's really important is that these, the memory of these guys will live forever. And I'm finding that idea expressed. I have found, uh, you know, I don't know enough yet to know whether it's common in Northern monuments as well, because this is something I'm only just starting to notice, but I have seen since I saw the first one, several examples of Southern monuments where there has been this kind of messaging on it. And it's interesting because, you know, where we are right now, we are seeing people talking about, you know, if we have to, if we take them down, that's going to destroy the history and then the history is going to be forgotten forever. But then you have the monument itself standing there and saying, no, I'm not important. The history is going to live on forever. And they probably weren't thinking about this moment when they put that text on there. But it's interesting for us now to see some of these texts and to think about that. So historians of of poetry of the Civil War era have long noted, I mean, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, have noted how Southern poetry of the late antebellum and, and during the war period is suffused with references to the inevitability of, of death, glorious death, war death, not quite metaphors for failure in the coming war, but kind of pointing to an inevitability of the decline of kind of an idea and, and of course, of, of humans. Do you read those references to eventual deterioration in that spirit, you know, that kind of 
particular war era spirit or is it a response to something in the 1890s or in the 1910s or contemporary to when these monuments are made? That I'm not sure about. So one of the earliest references that I've found that has one of these was the Camden, Alabama monument that I was just visiting uh, a week ago. And that one was from 1881. So this is starting pretty early on um, in the memorialization of Confederate monuments. So when that poetry is still in memory. Yes, definitely. So, you know, I think you could see it as kind of part of a larger sort of romantic conversation about death, about decay. You know, you've got Megan Kate Nelson has certainly done amazing work on thinking about Americans' obsessions with ruins and about how the Civil War kind of made it so that there were ruins in the United States to actually look at. I like to think about the Thomas Cole painting, the last one in the, uh, the Course of Empire series, The Desolation. And that so many of the threads that I'm working with seem to kind of go back to that painting as well. And so, yeah, I don't think that they were necessarily trying to say on these monuments that they were expecting them to come down or necessarily that they were trying to read the same way that I'm thinking of them now, which is like, you know, okay, so so this is an answer to uh, to this argument about monuments as history. But, you know, it's kind of certainly interesting to, to think about that this way. Again, I'm going to intend my next question for both the South and the North, and I know the answer may be different. So speaking of deterioration, how has upkeep of these monuments varied, and what does the state of their upkeep, might or might the state of their upkeep, tell us about how maybe we should consider their permanence? So one thing that's been really interesting for me in watching what's happened over the past couple of years is that I hadn't quite thought about how kind of the inexpensiveness and quickness with which these things were put up affects the state that they're in at the moment. What has been striking to me looking at some of the aspects, some of the the instances of iconoclasm like in Durham and places like that, is how easily they went over when someone pulled on them. And and by went over, you mean literally came down. Like how easily they came off their pedestals, (laughs) that they weren't stuck together, that that nobody had bothered to like screw the the top part onto the bottom part because they never (laughs) thought anybody was going to try to knock it over. And that like, you know, that inertia would keep that thing there forever. But it turns out that if you pull on them, that they fall over. And I've been wondering about that. Like, you know, are they all going to fall over? And you keep hearing, I keep finding instances of like things coming down in hurricanes and all these different kinds of structural problems. Another thing that I've been thinking about a lot is materials. And sometimes kind of by accident of where you're talking about, one kind of material is going to be used more than other kinds. So the four main types of materials that these monuments are made out of are granite, bronze, zinc, and marble. And each of those kind of declines at a different rate and is more likely to, like some are more likely to have problems than others. Granite is pretty much okay. It's a very hard stone and it's hard to kind of do anything to harm it. And so monuments that were made out of granite in the late 19th century still look pretty good. Bronze monuments need kind of constant care of their patina. They are subject to corrosion, you know, and so they need a certain amount of treatment to take care of that. Zinc monuments um, have a problem called creep which is that as their metal kind of expands and contracts with moisture and with changes in temperature, the different parts can kind of pull apart from each other. So you might see a a base that's made of zinc that the seams where it was once put together are starting to split apart. Or my favorite thing about zinc monuments is that 
all of these ones from the Monumental Bronze Company were slightly heavier in one spot because of where the cape was. And so as a result, all of these same soldiers, of which there are about 80 of them, are all leaning over on their pedestals in the exact same angle. Let me let me jump let me jump in really quickly. By cape, you mean the cape the figure is wearing, not the cape that the figure is wearing, the cape of the overcoat. And so it's it's a little bit heavier in one spot. And so they all kind of lean a little bit backwards and to the left because it's heavier in that one spot. And there's like 80 of them and they're all leaning over. And then the the marble ones are the worst ones. Um, and those ones are predominantly in the South because the Southerners were buying their statues from Italy, which was making all the all the uh, the marble. And they are prone to sugaring. So when the surface kind of starts to become kind of sandy and starts to come off, um, they absorb all of the effects of climate change, of acid rain, of car pollution. They start to get discolored because they're, they're kind of collecting all of the smoke and grossness from cars going by all the time. And so they're the ones that are actually in the worst condition, and they are predominantly Confederate monuments. Zinc? Why? I, I, I'm surprised maybe I shouldn't be to learn monuments are made out of zinc. Is that normal or was that a cost saving or? Um, so that became kind of a big thing in the 19th century um, that the zinc is a lot cheaper than bronze. And there were companies like the Monumental Bronze Company um, in Bridgeport, Connecticut is the biggest one that were marketing zinc as an alternative to bronze, one that was a lot less expensive and one that supposedly was a lot more durable. That hasn't necessarily played out. I think the bronze ones are kind of largely in better condition than the zinc ones now. But for a while, a lot of people bought zinc monuments because they wanted them quickly. They wanted them inexpensively. They wanted to be able to afford to get an actual figure as opposed to just having, you know, a stone monument with with no sculpture. And so they bought these inexpensive zinc monuments and they're all over the country. Let's wrap up by talking about the afterlife of monuments, particularly in the South. And maybe there's a specific monument through which to talk through this or, or maybe not. A number of Jim Crow era monuments to Confederates have been vandalized, um, including in the last year or two. The example of Silent Sam at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill has been the most prominent example, and we'll talk more about that with my next guest. Is there a typical or common, maybe multi-year path through which a community goes before defacement or some type of forced removal becomes... I don't know, an only option or inevitable? I don't know whether there's a standard process. What I think we're seeing over the past couple of years is all different kinds of solutions and all different kinds of processes having, happening simultaneously all over the place. First of all, you have in many of the Southern states, you have these state laws that are preventing any kind of change from being made to the monumental fabric. So that's one thing that you're dealing with. And when you, especially North Carolina in Durham and also at Chapel Hill, those acts of iconoclasm were protests against that state law because the state law prevents you from doing any other reasonable thing with the monument. And so what those protesters decided to do was say, well, if we can't do anything legal, we're going to do it another way. But you know, there's there's all kinds of examples of different ways that this has happened. Some places are trying to recontextualize their their monuments by putting up a plaque or putting up new works of art next to them. That happened at the University of Mississippi. It also happened um, in DeKalb, Georgia, which was a really interesting one recently, where they've put up a very fiery plaque in front of it saying, you know, we're not allowed to take this down, but it's a racist piece of crap, basically. So there's been examples like that. There have been a number of removals in Florida 
because Florida doesn't have one of those state laws. And so um, Bradenton, Florida, Gainesville, um, a number of places have kind of in a very organized way taken their statues down from the courthouse lawns and put them up again in cemeteries in areas where Confederate soldiers were buried. So that's one solution is to kind of move them off site to a place that is less prominent and might put them in, a, in something that make, makes kind of more historical sense. So kind of returning them to their original purpose of grave markers for for soldiers. So that's something that's happened. I, I, I know you have specific thoughts on the effectiveness of replacking, as it were. Yes, I personally don't think it's effective. And, you know, the case in university, the University of Mississippi is a really good example of, of why it can be a problem. So, you know, they decided they were going to recontextualize it. They put up a plaque with kind of a milk toast test text on it that didn't even say the word slavery. People just justly complained and were like, you know, this does nothing to recontextualize the monument. It doesn't say the problem at all. So they took that plaque down and put up a new plaque that is much more strongly worded. And then that had been up for a little while. And that's one of those monuments that's kind of right in the front and center, right down a major road. And so somebody came down in the middle of the night, a drunk driver, and hit the plaque and knocked the plaque over. And so they had to go order a new plaque and put it up again. But, you know, no matter how big the plaque is, unless it's an enormous billboard behind the monument that says this is racist, it's always going to be like a little thing that does not does not actually counteract the effect of an enormous monumental work lionizing this cause. And people don't read plaques. You know, people people don't pay attention to that sort of thing. And so for me, the kind of recontextualization that would work is one that really disrupts the visual work that is being done by the monument. There's a great on Mealy uh picture of the Beauregard Monument in New Orleans from twenty sixteen that when she was on the on the show, she and I discussed in 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 the context of recontextualization and uh and monument drift if you will and 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 the way she used something behind the monument to make um a specific comment about the about the cultural context context of the monument we'll have a link to that conversation on the show page for this episode and we'll include uh on Mealy's picture on 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 the page for this episode Sarah Beatham thanks so much all right thank you That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.